Good morning. So if you've been here before, you can probably tell that I'm not Pastor Tom. Like Dan said, he's still enjoying the tail end of a much-deserved vacation. And uh, by way of introduction, my name is Paul Joyle, and my wonderful wife Liz, who's in the back, and I, we serve together in a campus ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And we just relocated to Worcester last year. We had been in Boston before that, and we came to Worcester out of a sense, uh, for one, we took on a region-wide role with our organization, but also we had a particular heart for the city and all the students in it. It's one of the most significant college towns there is. And so we came here last summer and began kind of searching around for a church that we would call our home and our church community. And it was a year ago this week, actually, that we walked in here for the first time, and our search abruptly ended right there. So we were really warmly welcomed here and, and also just very drawn to the vision and the passion of this church. And uh, I'll say a little bit more about it because I think our, our scripture today actually speaks a bit to the vision we have for what kind of church that we want to be here in Worcester. So... We are in the midst of a series, uh, we're I think week 15 or so of a series that's going to take us all the way to the Advent season before Christmas called BC, the big story of God and us before Jesus. We're, we're going to take a big sweeping look through the entire Old Testament. And I don't know about you, if you've been here for any length of time, I've really been learning a whole lot from it and hopefully we'll have the same experience today. Uh, so last week we left off with Noel doing an incredible job uh, taking us through the story of the Exodus. Really dramatic stuff as God delivered the people of, of Israel from the hands of Egypt. They'd been enslaved by the Egyptians for hundreds of years, and we see some pretty dramatic stuff last week. There's plagues and all kinds of uh, destruction. There's the Passover lamb and the, the wiping out of the firstborn of Egypt. There's the, the Israelites backed up against the Red Sea with the army of Pharaoh coming in upon them to kill them, and God parts the Red Sea so the Israelites can get through safely, and Pharaoh's army is defeated. It's pretty dramatic stuff and amazing stuff and a picture of what salvation looks like, kind of God intervening on behalf of people and the clothes that start to roll in and we could walk away and feel really good. Oh, what a great story, nice resolution. But the story actually doesn't end there. We, we do go on and in fact, uh, the story of the Israelites and their journey, it just begins with the Exodus, even though that's the culmination of a long process. And so we're going to start to walk with them in their journey with God. And I've called this sermon, Israel's Baby Steps with God. This is kind of into being a nation, into being people who walk with God, into learning what it's like to follow him and to serve him and to know him. Infancy period. So we'll call it Baby Steps. Um, the story that Malia read is kind of representative of a series of stories that we're going to really quickly look at uh, as Israel first uh, wanders out into the desert with God. So I'll actually quickly summarize four stories uh, that happened. So we'll pick up right after the big party in the wilderness. So a big party, yay, the Israelites have been delivered from Egypt, we're all celebrating. But then they move on. God takes them out into the wilderness. And the first thing that happens is they get to a place called uh, Mara, and they find that there's, there is some water there. They've been in the desert, so they're extremely thirsty. They're, they're looking for water. They finally find some water, but oh no, it, they can't drink it. It's called bitter. So the, the water, for some reason, is undrinkable. So they've been wandering through the desert, parched, thirsty. They finally find some water and they can't drink it. And so it says they grumble against Moses. They grumble against Moses. Why did you even bring us out here just to kill us? And what happens is God instructs Moses to throw a piece of wood into the water and somehow it, it miraculously becomes drinkable and they're able to drink. They're able to be okay. And then they move on to a place called Elam 
where it says there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. 12 and 70 are kind of numbers of completion in Hebrew. So it's just to represent kind of a complete provision, God completely providing for the needs of the people in the desert. So, ah, again, resolution. That's nice. They're completely provided for. But then they move on to another place, the desert of sin in Exodus chapter 16. And here they seem to run out of food. And the Israelites, again, kind of freak out. They're very upset. They're, they're like, again, we had all the food we wanted in Egypt. Suddenly their condition of slavery in Egypt is looking pretty good. Like we had pots of meat and everything that we wanted when we were in Egypt. Again, did you bring us out here just to starve us to death? It's again, uses the word grumble. The Israelites grumble against Moses. What are we going to do now? And again, God miraculously provides for them. So Exodus 16 is a story of, of God miraculously providing food in the desert. In the evening, quail come, just hordes of quail, enough to, to satisfy the hunger of everyone there. And then every morning, we have this stuff called manna that appears in the desert, kind of this for the Israelites to live on. It's just clearly a sign of God's miraculous provision. Only God could pull this off. And so he provides for them again, meets their needs. <sighs> We're satisfied for a little while. But then we move on to the next place. And this is where Malia read from us. And, there, and there's another out of water again. So once again, they, they, this time they quarrel with Moses. This is a stronger word. It's kind of a, a word used for sort of like a legal charge brought against Moses. Like, what are you doing to us? Have you brought us out here just so that we and our livestock and our children can die of thirst? And then they grumble against Moses for good measure too. So they quarrel and they grumble having run out of water. And again, God miraculously provides for them. He tells Moses to take his staff, strike a rock. And I don't know if you've ever seen water come out of a rock. I have not. But out of a rock comes enough water for the people to live on. So again, miraculous provision when the people can't fend for themselves and don't know what to do. And they cry out and grumble. And God kindly and graciously provides a miracle for them. Then we move on from there. And as if it hasn't been bad enough being hungry and thirsty in the desert, then in Exodus 17, the later half of it, they get attacked. So these vulnerable people, they've just come out of slavery. They probably don't have a really well-formed army or anything like that. They're really vulnerable. They're really defenseless in the middle of the desert, and they get attacked by a mighty, powerful army from another nation that wants to try to wipe them out. And again, God comes through for them. He defends them. They go to battle against the Amalekites. And the way the story is written, it's made very, very clear that it's God who's fighting for them and God who is kind of the decisive factor in the battle. So he comes to their aid. He defends them in their helpless state. And at the end, Moses builds an altar and calls it, the Lord is my banner. God came through and fought for them and protected them when they were vulnerable and had no place to go. So each of the, this is like super quick overview, but we're going through the whole Old Testament in like 30 some odd weeks. So it's the way it's got to be. Each of these stories is unique in its own way, has details that would be worth exploring. Each story would be worth a sermon in its own. But we're just going to take the broad strokes this morning, take the big picture. What can we learn from all of these stories put together? And where do they fit into this big story we've been looking at of the entire journey of God and people through the Old Testament? So uh, boil it down to four Ps, just to summarize our thoughts here. They're all interrelated, but uh, we'll just get going with, our, with the Ps. So one is that we see the Israelites entering into a process. So last week we saw... Uh, kind of a picture of what salvation looks like in the dramatic rescue and the, the sudden change from slave to free and oppressed to, to their own nation um, and God intervening and, and dramatically rescuing and acting on behalf of people to save them and to deliver them. 
And that is what salvation is like. There's an element of salvation that's dramatic and it's decisive. It can happen in a moment, in an instant, and there's a, a sudden and dramatic change in our whole identity. We go from uh, aliens to, to citizens in the house of God. We go from dead to alive. We go from under the power of sin to free from the power of sin. And God can do that quickly and instantly in a moment, in a powerful way, just change our whole identity and put us in a whole new place of being. That's what we looked at last week. Well, there's also an aspect of salvation that's a process, a process worked out over the course of time. So just a little illustration. So uh, before we moved here, Liz and I uh, had the privilege of getting a, a six-month sabbatical. We had been working with InterVarsity for 10 years, been charging hard, working really hard. We were kind of tired, and we'd been in Boston, so we were extra fast-paced Bostonian kind of people, uh, a lot of Starbucks, that kind of thing. And... And a family from our old church provided a home for us to live in during our sabbatical in Gloucester. It's a beautiful seaside community on the North Shore of Massachusetts, and, and we were living right on the ocean. So one day we're working, and the next day we're on sabbatical. One day we're in Boston, and the next day we're in Gloucester. You know, complete change, just like that, dramatic. Um, but internally, uh, it took me a while to catch up with the process, and I was still carrying Boston with me when I went into Gloucester. Liz, for some reason, she just dove right in and had a great time. But I found I was just restless inside. I didn't know what to do with myself. My, my thoughts were racing a million miles an hour, and it really showed up when I would drive. So I, I'm a Boston driver by, by nature, and, and, and Gloucester, people just drive slow. They just kind of dawdle along and look at the scenery. And I would be that guy right on their bumper, like, come on, let's go, even though I had nowhere to go. It's just the only way that I knew how to drive was like a, an impatient, angry Bostonian. So, you know, in an instant, it took one day to move from work to sabbatical and from Boston to Gloucester, but it took quite a while for me to slow down. And for the, it was a process. So it kind of works that way. So the Israelites... Just in, a, in an instant, they're not slaves anymore. They're not in Egypt anymore. But they carry a lot of Egypt with them. So Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. He gets quoted a lot in this church. He, he uh, had looked at this passage and said, you know, you can take a people out of slavery in an instant, but to take slavery out of a people can only happen by a long process. So salvation is not just a moment, not just an experience, but it's a process. It's a, the complete totality of the work of transformation God wants to do in our life. It takes time. We can come to Christ in an instant, and our, our identity is changed instantaneously. We're now his children. We're now forgiven. But we carry a lot with us, old habits and, and thought patterns and beliefs, behaviors, wounds, and, and ways we've been hurt, ways that, that we struggle to live out our Christian walk. And then those things, they just take time. We wish man, they could be instantaneously changed along with everything else, and we could, in, we could instantly just be perfectly new creatures. But the, it's a process that God takes us through. When we come to Christ and when we, we become Christians, it's just the beginning, just the beginning of our journey, just the beginning of our process. You know, I love that our church is called The Journey. When we first came here, I thought, oh, The Journey, it's like one of those hipster names, you know, trying to be like relevant and cool. But, but honestly, I can't think of a better name for what... what it, we're about here as a community. We are on a journey together. We are in process, a process that God is working out in our lives and will continue to work out all the way through our lives and into the next. We're in process together, and I love that. Now, along the way, along this process, we see uh, the second thing, the second point, is provision. It's, it might be the most obvious feature of the stories that, that we quickly went through this morning. 
They're stories of provision, of miraculous provision, of God providing for people when they can't provide for themselves. They have no other recourse, and God provides. I mean, making undrinkable water drinkable in an instant, providing manna and quail out of nowhere, providing water from a rock, providing protection from a vicious army. He provides for them over and over again. They're beautiful, beautiful stories of provision. Can you just imagine if, if we left off last week, God had, had delivered the Israelites from Egypt, from slavery, brought them out in the desert, and then said, all right, you're on your own now. Go work it out. They wouldn't have lasted more than a week. God provides not just for their rescue, but for the whole journey. He doesn't just provide to get them out of Egypt, but he provides to get them the whole way. And that's how it is in our walk with him. He provides everything we need to become forgiven, to become in a relationship with God, to become children of God. But the amazing thing is he doesn't just stop there. He provides for us every step of the way. Again, when we come to Jesus, our journey is just beginning, and his provision doesn't end there. And he, he wipes his hands clean and says, all right, now you're, it's up to you to figure out how to walk this life and work out this Christian life on your own. We like to be that way. Our society is very self-reliant. We value independence and self-reliance. But the Christian life is not a do-it-yourself project. We need God's provision every step of the way. Now, he wants us to participate. We're not just passive agents in all this. He wants us to participate. We see that in the Israelite story. They have to do certain things. They have to gather the manna in certain ways. It doesn't just appear on their plates. So he, want, he gets them participating in this life, but it's clear that he's the one providing. And again, in our walk with God, we, he wants us participating, but at the end of the day, he's the one who provides what we need for our spiritual journey. We don't fix ourselves. We don't overcome the wounds that have affected us. We don't suddenly become more loving people just by our own will. We don't give ourselves spiritual gifts out of which to live and to lead and find a purpose in life. We don't transform our patterns and habits and ways of acting and thinking. God does that. God provides everything that we need for every step of the journey along the way. So we have some examples of provision here. Uh, but provision goes on from God for the rest of our lives. We can't make our Christian walk a do-it-yourself project, and we can't look at other people and just think, why can't you just shape up? What's the matter with you? Get it together. We need to point them to God, because God is the one who's going to provide what they need if they're struggling, if they're immature, if there's ways they need transformation. We point them to God, not to themselves, to fix themselves. Uh, it's a very important difference. But this provision... It changes over time. So the way that God provides for us at a young age is different from how he provides for us in a middle age and an older age. The way he provides for us when we're first beginning to walk with him, it looks different than through different seasons of life. He provides for us differently when we're in low points and high points in our lives. His provision, uh, it changes over time, it, just how it looks. And so uh, the, the second, number two on your program, is progress. So... It's very important that we don't take these stories of provision in the desert, these baby step stories, as the blueprint for what the spiritual life is supposed to look like the whole way. This is Israel's infancy period. These are their baby steps. The, the interactions they're meant to ha they have here are really important steps along the way for them, but it's not the whole thing. It's not the blueprint for how their life is supposed to look the rest of the way. I remember uh, I had a really dramatic experience with God in Worcester a long, quite a while ago. I was a freshman in college, 
And I, was I had some faith background growing up, but I really was far, far from it. And so I was just kind of coming back to faith and just starting to walk with God. I was in my, my infancy. And I had some Christian friends who gave me a Bible, and they seemed really into their Bible. They would read it and talk about how God like, met them in their Bible reading. And, and I would open it up, and it might as well have been in the original Greek to me. Because I just, it's like, what do I do with this? It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand. And I was getting frustrated because I thought, well, there's got to be something in there. My friends are getting it. What about me? So fast forward to March of 1997, and I was in Worcester. I was with my school for the NCAA hockey tournament, staying in a hotel. And I couldn't sleep at night after the game, uh, just restless, up really late. And then uh, I remembered, don't they have Bibles in the, in the drawer at the hotel room? So I open up the drawer, I pull out the Bible, the Gideon Bible, and I pray something along the lines of, all right, God, I think you're in here somewhere. Other people seem to get it. And so if you're really here and, and you can really speak through this thing, I'm not going to bed until you say something to me. And I flipped open and... Long story short, the, thing, the passage that I read, it just spoke directly into everything that I've been thinking about, everything I've been feeling up to that point. It was amazing. It was, it was like, wow, there's really someone on the other line here. It just made sense. It opened my eyes. I thought, God is really in this. I've been an avid Bible reader ever since. That's a beautiful story, the one that I'm really grateful for, God coming through for me in my my kind of baby steps, the infancy of learning to walk with him. But if I were to come to him like that now, that would be really immature of me. It would be really kind of dishonoring to me to just come, keep coming to the Bible and say, well, if you're real, then say something to me. I know that. I know he's real. I know he speaks through his word. So it would be dishonoring to God to, to keep coming to him like that. I know he's in there. And so I come to him because I know there's wisdom there and because I love him. I want to get to know him more, not because I demand a sign or a proof that he's real. So provision looks different. And it's easy for us in ways early on in our journey that we can get, we can get hooked on. But really, he wants to mature us. He wants us to progress and how we come to know him. So I still need his provision when I come to the Bible. I, it still doesn't you know, reveal God to me unless he, he does it. I don't just go to the Bible and figure it out myself. But I come to him differently. I come to his provision because I don't need a sign. It's because I trust him. I know he's there. I know the Bible is what I need for wisdom to live my life. And so I come to him in a loving and a trustful way to get to know him more. And he provides in that way. There's a quote from a, a book I love by Eugene Peterson called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is a really great uh, description of what the Christian life is like. And he says this, it should be up there. Uh, Often our Christian lives begin at points of desperation. And God, of course, does not refuse to meet our needs. The early stages of Christian belief are not infrequently marked with miraculous signs and exhilarations of spirit. But as discipleship continues, the sensible comforts gradually disappear. For God does not want us neurotically dependent on him, but willingly trustful in him. And so he weans us. The period of infancy will not be sentimentally extended beyond what is necessary. So again, this is Israel's infancy stage. We don't see a lot of progress in them in the passages we looked at today, but it's just important in the big story of the series that we're doing to see this passage in context, to not romanticize the manna and the quail and the water as kind of the blueprint for how we and commandments and, and some responsibilities and some expectations that they have. He's, he's growing them up into early childhood and adulthood. Um, 
So yes, this is infancy. Just want to be clear about that. And I want to look at one scripture together, if you'll read it together with me. This is from the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says this about infancy. So read it together with me. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still teaching about righteousness. So infancy is an important stage, and we need to work really hard as a church to welcome people who are just getting started on their spiritual journey, to provide places for them where they can discover real, and they can meet him in his word, and they can see him, uh, you know, just reveal himself to them. But we also need... So you see the Israelites just crying out to God, kind of, or actually they really cry out to Moses. They don't even cry out to God. They don't really know God all that well at this point. They know he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've seen him do things. They know he talks to Moses, but they don't know him all that well at this point. They know how to do age. And God so graciously answers them and, and provides for them. But later on when they grumble like this, he's not quite so um, understanding. He expects them to have grown up to, re- to learn from this experience and to move on. And so he actually punishes them when they have interactions like this later in the Bible. It's important to know that. And for us, you know, when we're just getting to know God, it's, it's fine to, to pray like I did in the hotel room. But, but eventually, you know, if our only way of coming to God is, is to cry out to him when we're in trouble, if we only come to him when we're desperate and we need something, if our only mode of interaction with him is to cry out for help when we're in tough shape, it's probably a sign of immaturity on our part. God wants us to come to him not just because we're in trouble and we need stuff. He wants us to come to him in a loving and a trustful way. He wants us to come to him with our needs, not to prove that he's real, but because we trust him as the one who will meet our needs, as the one who can provide better than anyone or anywhere else. So, progress. It's a long journey, and God is invested and interested in our progress along the way. Now, we don't see a lot of progress in the passages we looked at today. It was more just to see them in the context of the big story. But what we do see in the passage today, and what does continue on throughout the rest of the story, is that God is so incredibly, incredibly patient. One of the most important things we learn about God from how he interacts with Israel's baby steps is just his patience. So patient. I mean, we have the advantage of a bird's eye view of these stories, and it can be easy to wonder, like, what is wrong with these people? You know, the first time, sure, they run out of water, they, they freak out, God provides water, okay. And they run out of food, and they freak out again, God provides food. And then they run out, you know, in the passage that Malia read, then they run out of water again. And as we're reading this, you think, well, the sensible thing is, well, God provides water, doesn't he? But no, they freak out even more. And you start to wonder, what is wrong with them? As a reader, at least, I get impatient with them. I wonder, what what is their problem? When will they learn? Moses gets impatient with them. He turns to God, what am I to do with these people? We get impatient. We so easily get impatient with people when they struggle and when they come up short. But God responds with just incredible patience. They, they grumble against him, they accuse him, and he meets them with kindness. And he meets them with provision. He doesn't wait for them to ship up, shape up. He doesn't wait for them to get their act together. He just responds to their, their franticness. He responds to their weakness, to their inability, to their anger, whatever, with just kindness and with provision. So gracious and so patient. And that is a great picture of what God is like. Throughout the whole rest of the Bible, really, it's not like the Israelites stop um, acting poorly. 
They never really quite get it together. And God always responds with patience and with kindness. It says in the, the story of the manna in Exodus 16, 4, I will test, God says, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. So there's just one little test in the, in the passages that we read today. God tests them to see if they'll follow his instructions. So he gives them some instructions about how to gather the manna. Uh, only take what you need. Don't gather on the Sabbath. Gather double the day before and don't gather on the Sabbath. Real simple. Um, and what do they do? Some of them gather more than what they need. And some of them try to gather on the Sabbath. So he gives them one test and, and they fail it. And this is not, though, like the kind of tests that we're used to. I know a lot of you are medical students. You've probably taken some tests that were designed to, to weed you out so that uh, the people who fail, they can kind of dismiss and say, you're done, uh, you can't cut it anymore. It's not that kind of test. They fail the test, and God responds by providing for them. He responds with patience and with kindness and with love. And that is really the way God works he, never, he doesn't wait for us to get our act together to come to him. It's easy to think, oh, we've got to, we've got to get it together. We've got to be living good lives before he'll accept us. No, that's not the God of the Bible at all. He responds to us with kindness, with patience. And even later on when the Israelites have some responsibilities and they, there are some consequences for their actions, there are some punishments, but the punishments are never to drive them away. The punishments are always to bring them back to himself after they've run away. So even his punishments are acts of kindness. And then, then, the ultimate punishment for human wrong, for sin, for human error, the ultimate punishment, the full brunt of what we deserve for all the ways that we failed and wronged God and wronged others, God took that punishment himself. Jesus Christ came and bore the punishment, the one who didn't deserve it at all, the one who lived a perfect and sinless life, took the full brunt of the punishment for every way that we have failed and every way that we've sinned and wronged. That's the patience of God. And he didn't wait until we got our act together to do that. Would you look with me at a, a scripture from the book of Romans, which pretty much uh, summarizes this really well. And let's read this one together as well. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God responds to us with kindness and with patience, so much more than we're prone to respond to ourselves and to each other. He's a patient, loving, and kind God, and we can stand on that. And I wonder what, it, what would it look like if our community was just saturated with that truth, with that knowledge, that we just knew firsthand the patience of God, the kindness of God, and we responded to everyone who came our way with that same kind of patience. I think it would look like uh, our vision, a grace-saturated environment that welcomes seeker and saint alike. It's on the back of your program. It's just beautiful, a grace-saturated environment, one that is ruled by the kindness and patience of God along this process, along this journey, that we receive and we extend to one another, no matter where we are in our spiritual journey. Infancy, senior citizens, just getting started. We're all in different places. Some of you are much, much further along in your spiritual journey than I am. Some of you are just getting started. And we're going to meet more and more people in this city who 
who aren't really even getting anywhere in their spiritual journey. We want everyone here, a community that welcomes seeker and saint alike, into this process of, of walking with God, of being transformed by God, of experiencing God's provision, and of letting God progress them in their walk. And wherever we are in our journey, we can count on the God that we meet in the desert here with the Israelites. God who is totally, wholeheartedly committed to the process, who won't ever leave or bail out on us when it gets hard and when we let him down. Fully committed to the process and walking with us. Fully committed to providing for us in every way that we need. Fully committed to our progress, to not just leaving us the way that we are, but to providing what it takes for us to grow and mature and to be fruitful and effective in our walk and to be free from all the lingering effects of Egypt or of sin that we carry with us. And we know that all along the way, he will be patient with us, patient beyond probably what we can imagine. He's paid the price for all of the failings we've done up to now, and believe it or not, for all the ones that we still are yet to do. We have a beautifully patient God to walk through this journey with us together. So we want to close just with one more song to sing praise to this God, and I would love uh, yeah, if you guys could come up, and I will just pray to close us. Well, Father, thank you for this journey that you have brought us into as individuals and as a community. Thank you that we get to be part of what you're doing in the world. Thank you that you provide all we need to go forward from here. Thank you that for your incredible patience with us and with humanity. We see it way, way back in the exodus and the desert. We see it fully in Jesus, and we thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that you don't wait for us to get it together before you accept us. And we thank you that you love us enough not to just leave us the way we are, that you promise transformation, and you will see us all the way through the full process of salvation till we're fully made in your image, fully with you and the life everlasting. We praise you, God, and we commit ourselves to this journey again from wherever we are, high, low, strong, weak. We commit ourselves to participating in this journey. We say yes to your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.